You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, January 10th, 2022. This is episode number 190. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 22,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today, we're talking about D SPAC Pain, a potential cannabis retail store at an airport, 10 non alcoholic drinks for dry January, a new grant to study pain relief, what pot stocks to watch, cannabis and inflammatory skin conditions, a 91-acre property in development by Cresco Labs, new rules for Guam, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you may get the gong. Give it up for co-producer Priscilla Agoncillo. She's a Canamamipreneur, multi-award-winning influencer, CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League, and a smoking superhero. She's known for keeping elected officials accountable and having some of the best weed on planet Earth. Priscilla, what headline do you have for us today? Good morning, Susan. Thank you so very much. So my headline is Marijuana Maker Submits Plans for Wawarsing Production Site with up to 679 workers. I just want to make sure I said that right. (laughs) Wawarsing. The 91-acre property on the edge of the village used to hold a big factory with lots of workers used for decades to make TV antennas and then pocket and hunting knives. New York's flowering cannabis industry could revive the derelict site and jobs that evaporate there. The while we're seeing planning board has scheduled a January 18th public hearing on plans to build a 380,000 square foot building where cannabis will be grown, turned into various cannabis products and stored for wholesale distribution. The developer is none other than Cresco Labs, the Chicago-based company that makes and sells cannabis in 10 different states already. In documents submitted to the town, Cresco forecasts the facility ultimately could employ as many as 679 people. That's even higher than the three to 400 potential jobs that Ulster County and local officials celebrated when they announced Cresco's interest in the Sherrod site 
at the press conference in August. The property is located behind businesses on North Main Street, Route 209, and straddles a municipal border with nearly seven acres in village of Allenville and 84 in the surrounding town. The town is personally overseeing the planning process. The state hasn't begun issuing licenses yet to make and sell cannabis products for anyone 21 and older, but companies with medical cannabis licenses are hustling to expand capacity for the much larger adult use market on the horizon. In Orange County alone, companies are building 450,000 square feet to 140,000 square foot production facilities next to one another. And the third business, Pharmacan, is building a 50,000 square foot addition to its five-year-old operation in Hamptonburg. Cresco joined New York market in 2019 by bu buying Valley Agriceuticals, one of 10 companies in New York that had a license to make and sell cannabis products to prescribe um, for medical use. It hopes to complete construction of its production facility in 12 to 18 months. The plant would operate from 7 to 11 on weekdays and use about 98,000 gallons of water per day, which Ellenville has agreed to supply at its usual rate. This is Priscilla reporting on some advancements happening in the New York cannabis market for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. Like we hope they open up a retail outlet too. This is great. Right. Well, you know, these medical cannabis companies are definitely pushing hard for their market share. I know that part of the $200 million uh, social equity fund that they have uh, um, approved recently is going uh, towards the fact that they don't want the medical companies actually having uh, uh, an any type of advantage over um, how the medical uh, or how the adult use industry is going to start for everyone else. So um, people just have to assemble, organize, and and uh, get everything ready for it because uh, the medical side of cannabis companies in New York definitely are. Medical money is real. Is there anyone from New York in the audience that wants to weigh in on Priscilla's headline? If so, raise your hand. Any other correspondents want to weigh in on it? I'd like to say that um, Cresco is in Santa Barbara County. They have a facility here. And though um, on Glassdoor, their um, job rating and employees don't seem very happy, um, they do do a lot of uh, community service for the area and are very active in that. So... That being said, I'm hopeful that if this all goes through, that they can bring a lot of benefit to that area also. You know, I think uh, the industry is going to keep seeing, you know, it's still, we're, if you've heard of storming and forming and norming, like the old business, you know, organizational behavioral stuff, the industry is still normalizing and we're going to see some things like that, what Liz is describing, but also we need to redefine how we are doing this medical cannabis thing because it's limiting the potential, like it's it, medical and pharma and healthcare are related and relevant conversations, but cannabis is not uniquely medical. And the longer we keep this kind of verbiage, the further down the line, we're going to have a hard time staying out of healthcare as adult use manufacturers and companies who are trying to build a completely different market. We just have to redefine a couple things. Agreed. Keeping the uh, fact that cannabis is medicine is super important. Yeah, it's medicinal I, uh, for sure. We just have to reframe it 
from a from an industrial perspective. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Canavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Good morning, good morning. Today I've got an analysis of Leafly. Expect DSPAC pain. This is coming out of Seeking Alpha. So Weedmaps versus Leafly, an age-old one-sided industry battle. Most grizzly vets across the space know never really planned out the way that Cy Scott and Leafly's original team mapped it out from the beginning. Ahead of Leafly's planned SPAC listing this week with Merida Capital, it seems like their arch nemesis will continue to be a thorn in their side. SPACs were all the rage in 2021. This, uh, the so-called blank check companies make it easier for cannabis companies to back into the public realm through mergers and uh, with a lot less scrutiny on the front end than traditional IPO filings. With Leafly's SPAC proposal with Merida Capital expected to be voted on uh, virtually this Friday, January 14th, Cautious mainstream analysts are speaking up about the giant green elephant in the room, weed maps. Let's keep it a buck. Cannabis stocks have continually underperformed, and timing of this deal couldn't be worse for Leafly. Weed maps like Lester performance last year is seeming to push investors into a wait-and-see cycle, cautioning uh, speculative investors to hold off at least until the despacking process is over. On paper, Leafly is a decent alternative to Weed Maps. Both platforms are where consumers discover cannabis. Both offer paid subscribers, marketplace, and advertising services to connect with cannabis customers. Both are a three-sided marketplace powered by data, um, a research library, and uh, user reviews to produce a strong marketplace for brands and users to connect. But anyone looking at WeedMap's charts after completing their own despacking process last year will definitely take pause before dropping cash on Leafly. Safe banking did not pass, and we all know uh, how volatile the federal legalization process has been, scaring off a lot of the run-of-the-mill everyday investors. Uh, WeedMap's had their own legal issues reemerge about unlicensed clients possibly skewing real data. Uh, specifically a problem coming from the California market. While Leafly claims that their strict compliance uh, department sets them apart from weed maps and screens out all invalid licenses, analysts are still giving them the side eye. Leafly forecasts 2021 revenue at uh, $43 million, growing to 52% to $65 million in 2022. But weed maps last year had to keep cutting unlicensed accounts from the platform and reset financial targets continuously, putting a, a lasting damper on larger investors interested in the space. Probably doesn't help that Leafly claims 7,800 brands and 125 million monthly in, uh, visitors to the site, but they only convert about 10% into transactions. Competitors Dechi and Jane have recently juiced up their coffers and are looking like comparable alternatives to outsiders. Now, while it's true the amount of funds raised from the weed maps and Leafly SPAC deals will put the two in a totally different space and the others will never be able to catch up, analysts are forecasting more cannabis SPAC turbulence ahead. Weed maps is trading down to $5 and a lot of other SPACs trading right around $10 have all collapsed with investors all selling out as soon as the deal's clear. Leafly and Merida propose raising 161 $1.5 million total, adding to the SPAC money uh, to their previous $31.5 million capital raise. But if that $130 million is immediately redeemed, 
they're in the same boat as everybody else. Investors don't like putting capital into something pretty much guaranteed to lose money on the front end, even if they know it's going to pay off in the long term. And with investor uh, community not being directly plugged into the streets, it just seems like questions outnumber the answers needed to uh, instill confidence in cannabis SPACs at this time. And if Leafly stumbles out the gate this Friday, my bets on all fingers being pointed at weed maps and their shady pass as to the reason why. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad from Wall Street to Main Street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan. I mean, they're converting 10% into actual customers. Isn't that good? Not good enough. Wow. If, if, okay. if, if they're proposing themselves as being the, the only true competitor uh, to weed maps, they should have a higher uh, conversion rate. Talking about Still the, pretty uh, good, though. I think, right? 10%? I'd say 10% is good for for any industry. Uh, I get what Rico's seeing when he's talking about amplified growth and cannabis being, you know, there's the potential for some serious growth, but also we got to like start somewhere. And I, I'm not sure we have enough formalization of the process yet. No, and without federal legalization here, you're always going to get people looking for shit. To back them away from the uh, from the table, and we are not giving out stock advice on the State of Cannabis News Hour. No, we are not. No, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that uh, story, Rico. Up next, we have Liz Rogan. She is our very own paddle-boring cannabis educator. Uh, she is also a brand strategist and healthcare consultant. She is the founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara. Liz, what do you have for us today? Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Priscilla. Happy Monday, and thank you for joining us at the State of Cannabis News Hour. My story today comes from W Top, which is a publication in the Washington, D.C. area, and this story is by Christy King. The headline reads, Medical Cannabis Holds Promise to Help People with Inflammatory Skin Conditions. So I want to first off say that this story is based on the topical use of cannabis products, including cannabis and hemp from both regulated and unregulated sources. And so this um, study is basically, they're trying to understand, as a lot of people, as we know, are using uh, topicals, the dermatology um, field is trying to understand because the need to grow on um, the need to understand grows as continuing and widespread legalization of medical cannabis products grows in the field of dermatology, especially is no exception because they have, um, they're looking at ongoing research with skin cancer and lots of other inflammatory and neoplastic skin diseases. But there is evidence that said a 2019 study found that 80% of Canadian medical marijuana dispensaries listed indications for dermatological um, cannabis products that were not medically proven. So because this little data exists, um, Basically, the, they're looking to investigate uh, consumers' patterns of use and beliefs, as well as their um, basic knowledge regarding medical cannabinoids via multiple-choice survey. So they sent out this, um, this survey, and they tried to understand if patients believe that over-the-counter therapies have the same therapeutic value as physician-referred therapies. So... It basically found, the study found, um, sorry, it's from uh, George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and a collaboration with the University of Maryland. They found that 88.8% of people support the use of medical cannabis for dermatological diseases, and many are already using it without guidance from a dermatologist. Big surprise, right? Because it's available everywhere. So, 
Um, it's interesting because this was just a survey that people filled out. So it's not looking at actual real medical data, but this is a way to grab some data on trends. But interestingly enough, a lot of people used it for acne and psoriasis. Um, I personally, from my experience in the industry, didn't realize it was great for acne, but good to hear that people are using that. And I shall look into that further. Um, and essentially because there isn't that much data under, um, information data showing how cannabinoids work within the skin. Um, so Dr. Adam Friedman, who's a professor and chair of dermatology at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, said, given th that we know that consumers are already using cannabis-based products without a doctor's recommendation, it is of the utmost importance that products available over the counter have a certain level of quality assurance. And he said the future is tremendously bright for the translation of cannabis to the bedside in almost every discipline of medicine where science is there. We now need the clinical research to confirm what products work on what, said Friedman. So um, kind of short story, but interesting to see what the research is going on, and I'd love to hear people's feedback. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the Cedar Cannabis News Hour. If I had to choose just one way, I'd love to hear from you next, Dr. Felicia. Uh, if I had to choose just one method of consumption, it would be topical cannabis. I love a good bath bomb, and I'm looking for a recipe. I'm looking at you, sugar. Go ahead, Dr. Felicia. Yeah, we have got you, girl. We have cannabinoid receptors not only in our body, but all over our skin and our hair follicles, our sebaceous glands. That's why it helps with acne. Um, and there's a Canadian researcher, physician, um, who's had remarkable results with deep, deep um, skin ulcers, um, bed sores. Um, it's just it's remarkable what cannabis topicals uh, can do. I'm Dr. Felicia Dawson, speaking for the state of cannabis. It's a really good way to introduce <clears throat> older folks to cannabis, too, you know, with a nice... I know sugar's got a really great um, rub, and uh, I believe in it. It's amazing. I've known this for years. We've known it for years, right? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and I'll get a bath bomb to you, too. It's, it's wonderful to use a topical on your body, especially if you do not like ingesting THC. So putting that on and feeling that botanical healing is power. Thank you guys for all your feedback on this. I'm excited to see because I think that topicals and tincture are some of the best ways of medical uh, ingestion. And I'm so glad to see us actually have, uh, because I've heard doctors speak and say that it doesn't absorb at all. So this is great. Thanks, Dr. Felicia. She's an entertainment attorney, cannabis and psychedelics advocate, and known in certain circles as the princess of pot. Up next, we've got the founder of Shall We Talk, Shalina Panu. What news are you talking on for us this morning? Thank you, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Cannabis Lounge Regulations Are Almost Done in Vegas. In just a few weeks, Clark County, where Vegas is located, will have open hearings for businesses and the public for cannabis lounge regulations. Lounges are set to open in mid-2022. There are only just a few more rules that need to be squared away, such as designating areas for smoking, limiting THC per package, designating areas for consuming edibles, limiting visibility of consumption from the outside, controlling odors from leaving the property, and extremely strict training and security will be enforced at every lounge. Setting these regulations is crucial to success, especially for Vegas, which is the tourist hotspot of the world. Vegas will be setting precedent here in the U.S. by opening up more than 20 lounges in a legally regulated market. 
tourists visiting Vegas currently have the issue of where to consume cannabis. This is a huge struggle because hotels, particularly on the Strip, have banned cannabis outright, which leaves consumers unable to consume legally. As I'm sure you've seen if you've ever visited Vegas in the last couple of years since legalization, people have resorted to going outside of their hotel to smoke, but even then, the environment, weather, and circumstances can definitely affect the experience, not to mention security telling you to put it out. Vegas itself is built off of debauchery. It is the exact purpose of why people seek out this incredible city. Not allowing people to consume cannabis, especially when it's legal in Vegas, is mind-blowing. Nevada knows they are in the forefront here and essentially leading the way as pioneers for setting up cannabis lounges. The whole world will be waiting to see how they do this because other states and counties will attempt to mimic the same type of model. Ladies and gentlemen, please take a second here and think about how this is going to change the cannabis consumption landscape across the globe. I know we get caught up in the little details and regulations as such, but we are in fact watching history being made, and it really is a beautiful thing to, a beautiful thing to see and be a part of. My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I agree with you, Shalina. I, I, I want to complain about having to mitigate the odor, but yes, it's it's a br- big freaking deal, yeah. and we have gone so far. Uh, we've got Danny up from the audience. Danny, did you want to weigh in on Shalina's headline? Yes, I did. Thank you, Susan. So I'm vice president of the Chamber of Campus in Nevada, and I just wanted to clarify, there's actually going to be 40 consumption lounges. Um, So 20 will go to uh, dispensary license holders, and that's one license per group. There's not going to be, if you have multiple dispensaries, you're not getting multiple um, consumption lounges. And then there'll be an additional 10 that go to independent license holders and 10 more that go to social equity applicants. So again, just increasing the demographic of ownership. Um, Yes, the regulations were so excited to uh, get that information out. Um, We highly recommend you checking out the Chamber of Cannabis if you plan to enter the market. Um, We're happy to connect you with our vast network of uh, resources. We touch over um, pretty much the entire Nevada industry. We have 400 members and 60 businesses. So. Hey, Danny. Danny's um, been behind this, so she's really been on the forefront of this. Yeah, Danny, thank you for joining us. Um, is it? Do you guys have a rough estimate as to how quickly these licenses will be rolling out? We have been told within the next sixty days the regulations will come out, um, which will then kind of clarify what the process is going to be for. Um, for uh, giving these licenses out, looking like it's going to be a license-based, or sorry, a lottery system as opposed to a merit-based system. But um, this is something that we've been working with regulators um, throughout this entire process, including um, helping write the business model that was uh, taken forth by Assemblyman Stevieager to get this bill passed. Uh-oh, more lotteries. Damn lotteries. That makes me so mad. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for coming up and contributing. That's what makes this show so amazing. Uh, We are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of the things. And this is what sets the State of Cannabis News Hour apart. We bring you the headlines, and then we have experts that have boots on the ground that are able to come in and weigh weigh in on the headlines. It's just really such a great thing. So thank you so much. Did, Did anyone uh, else want to weigh in on Shalina's headline before we move on? Uh, I just wanted to add real quick how exciting that'll be to piggyback off of what Shalina said about this being something new and innovative. And then the story we just had about topicals, can you imagine like cannabis spas, cannabis lounges in this way, like normalizing it and having it become a part of our everyday experience is going to change this industry for the good and the whole world. 
everything should be lounges everywhere. Lounges everywhere. everywhere I'm 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 excited about it. Yes. There should be a, at least one lounge for every two alcohol bars. I want a spa lounge on every corner. I'm not I mean it would be amazing. Simple math. So up next, we have one of my favorite people in the industry. She's a cannabis chef who creates new wellness solutions for sexual healing and knows how to rub a sound bath bowl just right. Oh, yeah. Coming to the stage next, D. Sugar Coplin Easley. What you got for us this morning, Sugar? Good day, everyone. Happy New Year to you again on this fine moon Monday. Tip your hat a glass for the satisfying story of yummy and infused drinks for this Cali sober lifestyle in January. My story is just the tip of an article written by Santiago Rodriguez Tarditi, a contributor on Leafly.com. 10 non-alcoholic drinks to help you through dry January. Tarditi goes on to write about how a couple of years ago, he started taking regular breaks from drinking. And through that journey of commitment to what he calls Cali's sober lifestyle, he has learned to love his abstinence from alcohol all while still enjoying his cannabis consumption rituals. Now, if you'd like to check out this amazing combination of libation superfans, please follow the link. Tarditi states that the outcome of living a drier and higher life was far better than originally envisioned, discovering a wide range of drinks waiting to deliver a bountiful experience without the debauchery that often accompanies alcohol. And it's way easier to find non-alcoholic drinks with good flavor in supermarkets than ever before. From classic beers to organic wines and adaptogenic drinks, there's a whole alternative beverage world waiting to be imbibed with fewer regrets. Now, he's listed some libations, but I'm going to share one of my favorites I'm sipping on now. It it's tickled just the tip of my tongue, and you can see how it tickles yours. Today's non-alcoholic market goes way beyond just beers and elixirs and wine, as I said, and there are flavors for everyone. So although this story is long, it gets to into the non-alcoholic elixirs and aperitifs and more. I've renamed this drink Edible Moon Monday Whiskey. It has an Art Deco vibe reminiscent of that jazz age era, not just in terms of how it looks, but also how it makes you feel. With this creamy butterscotch and caramel hints that provides richness, while those sweet matured raisins and roasted coffee give this zero alcohol whiskey depth, it's topped with notes of warm molasses and burnt brown sugar to keep you cozy and toasty with the addition of that special THC or hemp-infused tincture to set it off just right. There's three spirits... Uh, Social Elixir, Gia Aperitifs, Broad Spectrum Hemp Extract Drinks, and Non-Alcoholic Beers Alike, just like the haze. And as always, top it off with a joint. And for those of you who experience cotton mouth afterwards, try one of those new Flint mouth-watering mints. Just a tip. They're the latest craze to keep your mouth loosey, juicy, and ready for action. This is D Sugar Coplin Easley, aka Sugalicious or Sugalicious, depending on what part of this drink you catch me in. And I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan, Nicole, and Rika. Hey, Sugar, have you seen? I was at a party once and they had like a little chamber. They were making drinks and they had a little chamber where they would put the drink in there and blow some cannabis smoke in, in the chamber. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Does that even work? I personally don't think it works in that way, but there is an infusion method that you can do. 
And uh, I can't think of the name of that right now, but Sean, maybe you know that uh, answer. Smoke and all. Yes, I do. They smoke and all. It's this team of chemists that have found a way to infuse smoke. It's amazing. And that's the word. So you're saying it works. I, from what I understand, it can work. Uh, they, they are working on that. They are doing that. Yes, with that method, with the smoke and all. Interesting. I thought it's, it was just in, a silly gimmick. Mm-mm. It's in research, and they're chemists, so they're looking at multiple applications, but, of course, beverages would be one of those applications. Food would be another. Like, I'm imagining smoked barbecue, infused smoked barbecue. Like, the, the whole culinary gastronomy world, would it would be amazing. And then there's, of course, other, like, inhalation without smoke, you know, because uh, we're looking at a lot of people want to consume flour, and get as natural product as they can, but they're worried about combustion and lighting up in this way. So new ways to vaporize or, or get the benefits of smoke and cannabinoids in this. In this Come thing. on. You can actually see that on Bong Appetit also. They do that. Uh, Come on, yeah. Texas. Let's so do some smoke barbecue, Texas. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. But we didn't talk about, we didn't talk about sauce though. So it sounds like it's just smoked meat. And not barbecue. Get out of here, huh. go. Just saying. Gotta bring on the Come on. South by Southwest. I know South. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a cook off when we finally get together as a news team, uh, but we've reached the half hour already. We are going to quickly relight this room. Grab your lighters, grab your bongs, gra- grab your consenting adult partner, and let's relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. So she's the P-L-A-N-T-S, Plants for Life CEO, a dual board certified physician with an affinity for helping folks understand and manifest the immense power they have over their personal health while using cannabis as it was intended as medicine. Dr. Felicia Dawson, what kind of news you got for us this morning? Thank you, Rico. Happy Monday, everyone. My headline comes from Old Miss, University of Mississippi News. Researchers study cannabis pain relief with $1.37 million grant. Three researchers from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy have been awarded a $1.37 million grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse as their research focuses on reducing HIV-related pain through cannabis. Nicole Ashpole, Mahmoud Al-Soli, and Jason Paris are screening and identifying the compounds found in cannabis that may hold anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving effects without the addiction potential. Cannabis has hundreds of compounds in it other than THC and CBD, and we don't know much about how these compounds might affect the human body, said Ashpole, assistant professor of pharmacology. By exploring the effects of these compounds against HIV pain, we can gain insight into their potential benefits or risks in numerous other inflammatory disease states. The article goes on to state that people living with HIV use cannabis much more than people who don't have the infection. The author goes on to point out that the University of Mississippi has been supplying researchers with cannabis for over 50 years and that the University of Mississippi has been doing cannabis research since 1968. 
before cannabis was even put on the um, list of controlled substances and even before the National Institute on Drug Abuse was formed. People living with HIV have chronic pain due to the virus and sometimes due to the treatment. They can have pain from head to toe, musculoskeletal, joints, neuropathic or nerve pain, inflammatory pain, and opioids just don't get it. Opioids were never meant to be used long-term because you can get addicted within days. Um, It it can cause depression. And paradoxically, the pain can increase on long-term opioid use. Unfortunately, women living with HIV tend to be affected by pain more so than men, and they are undertreated for this pain. I am happy to see that NIDA is starting to give out more money to show positive things about cannabis. I just wish that the University of Mississippi could use a better quality product when they do this research, but who am I? This is Dr. Felicia Dawson reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What do you all think? I think it's a huge positive uh, go for, but more uh, research is only going to point more in the direction of truth, and we need more of that stuff. So. Uh, hopefully, we can have more people with uh, pain relief coming from uh, cannabis, especially in the HIV in the world of, of HIV. And cannabis, cannabis is really good in that it decreases the inflammation and the pain coming from the site of injury, as well as stopping pain impulses from getting to the brain. So cannabis works on two levels. So that's why I love it. And also a fabulous side effect of euphoria. We've got Anna Mead up from the audience, and she's also a State of Cannabis News Hour correspondent. Anna, did you want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say two things. One is that the impact of cannabis was well on HIV patients was well documented by Brownie Mary. So we do have a body of evidence. So it's nice that the quote-unquote scientists are catching up. Um, But the other downside, as Dr. Felicia mentioned, is the quality everybody knows is complete boof. So, you know, I wish they could use some better quality cannabis. Anna said boof. (laughs) All right. So this highly informed retired combat documentary journalist and mindset coach is working at the intersection of cannabis education and human ex- human performance optimization. After choosing to lo- no longer work for Uncle Sam, she now works for all of you, amplifying unheard voices in the cannabis community. Sean Salvaje, what kind of news you got for us this morning? Well, good morning, Rico. Um, you know, I've got a headline from Green Entrepreneur. It was originally published in Marijuana Stocks. And it's the top penny pot stocks to watch uh, this week for the second week of January. And part of what uh, intrigued me about the article is I think right now is a really good time. If you didn't spend that third and fourth quarter kind of looking back at what happened in the industry and what you think will happen as we keep pressing forward, you may be a step behind. Uh, While we have seen a decline in cannabis stocks um, since federal reform didn't pass, in 2021, while we are experiencing declines, I think uh, this is just my opinion, guys. Keep in mind, I am not a financial expert by any means. I'm just a mom who smokes a lot of weed and a communication strategist who's invested in this industry. This is what I see. Um, I think we can see that if you look at what has worked and what can stabilize across various industries, that we are at a unique point within the cannabis industry to begin to really formalize and standardize what the shape of this will look like one, once we get 
interstate commerce. And it's too bad Jason isn't here because he would just love that. Um, but the top stocks that they have for you to watch, because uh, we have a little bit of limited time, the top ones for the second week in January, they're reporting are Harborside Incorporated and Tilt Holdings. So Harborside is one of the fixed, first six companies in the U.S. to receive a license. They now operate six dispensaries in California and Oregon. They began growing their footprint in 2021, and they're expected to continue to do so in California. Um, they are increasing nearly cultivation capacity by more than half and allowing for year-round production. And I think one thing that, you know, helps to distinguish the companies that are going to make it and the ones that are going to struggle are the ones who learn how to work with one another. And that has been what I found most interesting about the, the next stock that they recommended, which was Tilt Holdings. They have a focus on worldwide markets and they're offering business solutions to cannabis entrepreneurs looking to develop a global brand. They have a very unique um, CPG focused uh, perspective that recognizes where strong brands already build value, uh, they can amplify that presence. And it's been really interesting to just kind of see how different MSOs and small regional operators and even local operators, like even within a state like Texas, how are the hemp operators um, looking at the year ahead and what forecasts do they have for themselves as we're all learning and growing in this industry together? I would love to hand the mic over to the floor and get your guys' perspective. What are your top predictions for 2022 as the industry begins to formalize and normalize? Now, technically, we can't give advice. And I actually have a personal um, tie to one of the companies that you listed uh, there. I actually helped them go public. But um, I would say um, if you don't know what you're doing, buy the whole fucking field. Like, um, we have no idea what's going to happen as far as uh, legalization. And um, there's going to be a lot of blood in the water this year. And there's going to be a lot of uh, people that are going to surprise you as well. So if you don't know the people at the bottom, you don't know the people at the top, watch from the sidelines. Mm. We have got co-producer Nicole West up on the stage. Nicole, did you want to weigh in? I definitely did. Um, I think it's important for people to realize that a lot of these stocks are completely misvalued based on the fact that the people that actually have zero fucking concept as to what's actually happening in the cannabis industry. Um, a perfect example, um, my cousin was the original founder and investor, or original investor on a company called Medbox, if anybody remembers that. Well, when cannabis went legal in Colorado, Medbox's stock went from $2 to $137 because everyone was fucking delusional and thought that we were going to all be selling weed out of vending machines on the corners. So there's a lot of misinformation in regards to how these are going to translate big picture because the people that are actually playing the games in the Monopoly win with the monocles and the fucking top hats don't actually grasp what's happening in cannabis. So nine times out of 10, these stocks are absolutely off. And when you look at what's actually happening, they're being based off of values of investment and the amount of fucking Monopoly men and, and privileged entitlements surrounding them. Mm, Taking a round, a, a round of applause for Nicole West coming through with the, some motherfucking facts for the people. Absolutely. I think that's what's indicative about the, the companies that will succeed are the ones who see the gaps and they want to bridge them. And they're doing it. It's honestly, guys, it's sound business practice. It's not unique to cannabis, but you also do have to be connected to cannabis, the culture, and understanding the history of it. So, or Nicole, you, spot on. Thank you. Or you, or you could uh, just ask the hamster. Ask the hamster. Just one quick mention that Harborside is just um, merged with Urban Leaf and uh, Loudpack, right? So now they're a new company called Statehouse. 
Oh, that might have been a super creative name. Worst name in the industry. (laughs) Worst name ever. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. So coming back to the stage, one of my uh, another one of my favorite people in the industry as well. She is the CMO of Event High and advisor of the International Cannabis Business Women Association, Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us this morning, Adelia? Welcome back. I'm back. I'm excited. I missed you guys. We okay, missed so. you so much. <laughs> yeah, she's back. <laughs> and today's article is uh, Prince George may become first airport terminal worldwide to open cannabis retail store. This is by Hannah Peterson of Prince George Citizen. Um, so on January 7th, the Prince George Airport Authority announced in a joint press conference that they are welcoming a new business partner called Copilot. Uh, they have high hopes of becoming the first airport terminal in the world to host a cannabis retail store that they are aware of. Um, What is Copilot? Copilot is a retail brand that provides a convenient, accessible, and curated cannabis purchasing experience for all travelers. Uh, It was founded by Owen Ritz and Reed Horton, college classmates and teammates at Dartmouth College. Uh, Now, PGAA CEO George or Gordon Duke, uh, said Owen and Reed approached them in early 2020 with a proposal to open the first cannabis retail store in an airport terminal worldwide. And they feel strongly that having co-pilot will enhance their services um, of their other business partners to provide their passengers and people of their origin. So what are the next steps? Um, The company first must obtain a business license from the city of Prince George. And if granted, they then would be able to open a cannabis retail store. Uh, Currently, co-pilot has been working with federal and provincial regulators throughout the license application process and has met every required step to operate so far. Uh, They're just waiting on this business license. Now, a few things to note. The airport will remain a smoke-free environment with the exception of designated smoking areas. Uh, Currently, they're looking for designating a separate cannabis area for combustible consumption. Um, The products and services do confirm to do conform to all federal and provincial laws, and the store would operate the same as other cannabis retail stores in in Prince George. Um, The store itself would be located before security, so it's not actually going to be just limited to travelers. Um, And the experience, again, would be similar to uh, both airport liquor stores and bars. If all plans go well, we can all expect to see the first cannabis retail store in an airport this summer. So this is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That is so crazy to imagine. It really is. Mm. So the stores before security, I was wondering how they were going to do that. Does that mean that security will take still take your cannabis away if you try and take it through? I wonder. I know. I, I, they didn't go into detail about that, but I would assume they wouldn't. But how would... Yeah, I don't know, actually. I love that. that they're looking at a separate consumption area. We shouldn't have to consume just where they smoke cigarettes. I love that. Anybody else? Are we not thrilled? Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. They give, a, they give, us, give a whole new meaning to the Mile High Club. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that's excellent. You know, you know they what's should have this. is that all the people who don't consume cannabis are now going to go through this terminal and have an exposure. And maybe if they take a, a certain approach with the education, I, I'm interested in seeing how this opens. 
uh, because it can be very influential. That, Christopher, that's what they should call the smoking, the consumption area, the Mile High Club. I love it. This would be awesome. The Mile High. This would be so helpful <laughs> for patients, um, people traveling, patients, consumers alike. I was stuck in Denver for a while, and it is so hard to know that you're being like that. That there's cannabis everywhere, but you're stuck in this airport and you can't have any, allegedly. Uh, we've got Mel up from the audience. Mel, did you want to weigh in on Adelia's uh, headline? Um, I kind of had a separate question and inquiry, kind of. Can you hear me? Nope. <laughs> we just comment on the headlines. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's keep it going. Now, if phone booths still existed and you saw smoke coming out the top, best not snitch. That's just the state of cannabis news hours. Very own Clark Kent getting higher than a bird or a plane could ever be in life. He's a communication strategist and publisher for the American Cannabis Report. Up next is Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, Rico, your intros are so great. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, and Good morning, Susan. Uh, good morning, everyone. My headline today is from uh, the Canadian cannabis pub called Mugglehead. Uh, Cannaby Scant on equity metrics in first ESG report. So an ESG report, in case anyone doesn't remember, is just pretty much the same as a CSR report, okay? Uh, so, sorry, just kidding. Um, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Uh, CSR is Corporate Social Responsibility. They're, they're, pretty much, they're still pretty much the same thing. Um, they're a company's way of explaining what, uh, that they're good corporate citizens, that they behave well in the communities in which they operate, and, of course, they do all this stuff better than all their competitors. So Canopy Growth Corporation, uh, number four cannabis company in the world by market cap, just released their ESG report. And it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, first, the good news. Um, last year, Canopy donated 75,000 pieces of PPE to hospitals during COVID and 14,000 CBD products to U.S. hospitals and nursing homes, uh, and also 57 iPads at nursing homes, so elderly people could stay in touch with their families. I think that's sweet. Um, they registered 23 thousand patients for compassionate pricing. Uh, they uh, are a company that has near gender parity with 48% of the employees being women and 38% of those are in managerial positions. They had zero product recalls globally uh, and they have formed uh, employee, employee resource groups for indigenous, black, LGBTQ and people with disabilities. Um, so about the E for environmental, um, commercial cannabis cultivation in Canada, the vast majority of which is indoors, is an energy hog, says Mugglehead. The company says it consumed a total of 405 million kilowatt hours in 2020. Um, and what that results in is uh, 58,982 tons of greenhouse gases. So for perspective, that's equivalent to 12,822 cars operating for a year. Uh, on to the S uh, in ESG, the social part. Here's where Canopy can do better. Uh, when it comes to diversity, the company did not publish any baseline figures. The company said, essentially, we track gender only, uh, but we're working on the rest of it. Uh, I could give you the actual corporate language they use, but it's kind of pathetic. They don't track their black employees, but in this report, they feature a white woman whose name is black, so that's something. Um, no mention uh, for, of equal pay for equal work, number of women's bathrooms. Uh, the benefits seem to be robust, health benefits and that sort of thing. Parental leave is included, which is good. Um, they write a lot of checks to local organizations, and, and oddly, they publicize an employee-led giving campaign, which 
bugs me, especially because of what Mugglehead points out, that Canopy defended the pay package of its CEO, David Klein, which is $45.3 million. It's significantly higher than any other CEO of a Canadian firm. They claim that when he came over from Constellation Brands, he had to forfeit a sweet package, which Canopy had to meet to keep him. Um, By comparison, Mugglehead compared Canopy to Brookfield Asset Management, another company in another area. But Canopy had $546 million in revenue. Brookfield, Brookfield had $82 billion. So 160 times the revenue, and their CEO made only 22% of the pay of the CEO of, um, of Canopy. Um, and oddly, also, another strange thing, which is for a company with $546 million in revenue, global revenue, Canopy only invested $120 and one day per employee in training. And they don't seem to care much about job security. The turnover rate was 67%, and 45%, 47% of that was in voluntary. And meanwhile, the company accepted $11 million in federal wage subsidies. So I think that's pretty gross. Um, But this kind of reporting is going to become more of the norm, especially with the bigger companies. So expect all big cannabis companies to do this kind of reporting going forward. And I believe uh, Hillary Black is of mixed race, too. She's a a five-month descent. Sorry sorry about that. All good. All good. All right. So um, up next, she is a feisty redhead reporter, former, um, excuse me, she is the current Washington insider, our very own Gretchen Gailey, representing Washington, D.C. What you got for us this morning? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. My headline comes from Marijuana Moment, uh, but it's actually an article picked up from the Mississippi Free Press. Uh, the headline is Mississippi Senator Brings Hemp to Governor's Office to Demonstrate Medical Marijuana Bill Possession Limits. Medical marijuana, which voters approved in 2020 before the entire ballot initiative process was overturned in 2021, is expected to be an early priority of the legislature. After months of legwork, including hearings, meetings, and private conversations between legislators, limited room to negotiate on the details of the proposal remains. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, Senator Kevin Blackwell, who is the architect of the medical marijuana bill on the Senate side, had a final meeting with Governor Reeves to come come to an agreement on the bill's last details. Reeves' opposition to the plan had evolved from vague distaste to the promise of a veto if the bill approves medical marijuana recipients for the currently planned amount of marijuana. Uh, Quote, I believe 11 joints a day every day for everyone with an uh, MJ card is too much, and I believe the potential of 100,000 joints per month on the streets is more of a recreational program. Uh, That's what the governor had said on social media in December. In an interview with the Mississippi Free Press, Blackwell described the meeting as cordial, but acknowledged that neither party was inclined to budge on the biggest issues. Uh, He said, I thought it went well. The governor was receptive, appreciative of the meeting. Hopefully, we move the bar a little closer to an agreement. He was noncommittal, so they're going to think about what we said and get back with us. Niceties aside, the legislative proposal thus far isn't buckling under the governor's pressure. We've presented what we thought was reasonable, Blackwell said. The amount has not changed. It's still four ounces per month right now. The legislature's proposal, which is intended to fill in for the broadly worded Initiative 65, allows physicians with a bona fide practitioner-patient relationship to certify patients for cannabis. These cannabis certifications provide for the purchase of medical cannabis in various forms, including smokables. Reeves, who previously indicated that agreement between the House and Senate would be sufficient for a 2021 special session to pass the bill, wants deeper restrictions on the amount of marijuana provided to patients. 
Blackwell told the Mississippi Free Press that he hoped Mississippi's additional safeguards against recreational use of the medical marijuana product would convince Reeves that the current limits on supply would be sufficient. Uh, He said, we talked about the differences between what he has portrayed as being Oklahoma's bill to the things that we've done, what we've put in place, the safeguards which Oklahoma didn't have. They didn't have a seed-to-sale tracking system. I don't believe that there's any cap on the qualifying diagnoses. We have, I think, 28 debilitating diagnoses. Counties and municipalities can opt out of the program. We've gotten so many safeguards in place. Blackwell says he also brought physical samples of hemp, which is legal, to the meeting for the governor to examine. I took samples to show him what an ounce actually looks like, what 3.5 grams actually looks like. Whether the appeal moves the governor or not may be more relevant than legislative backers of the plan would hope. We have the votes to get it through, Blackwell said, meaning the majority necessary to send the bill to the governor. Do we have the votes to override a veto? I don't know. That's a topic of discussion for another day. Diplomatic as his conversation with the governor may have been, Blackwell seemed confident that the legislature had done its part collectively to create a satisfactory bill. Lee Yancey's been great. Speaker Philip Gunn and Jason White have also been great. It has been an eye-opening experience to go through a bill of this nature. I don't know if any bill has been vetted like this with the transparency that's occurred. Uh, I think that this is a good move for uh, the Republican sponsor of this bill, uh, trying to demonstrate to the governor what a few ounces actually look like or what an ounce looks like and a few grams look like. Um, perhaps that education will move the governor. Um, I'm not sure since they said, we'll get back to you. That's generally a, you know, go suck it approach when you hear that uh, from a lawmaker. Uh, But we have heard in the past that there are enough votes uh, to override a veto. Uh, So hopefully that will hold. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. I wish they would have gone a step further and showed them what 11 joints out of an eighth looks like. Well, I'm sure they probably didn't know how to roll the joints, but, you know, we'll see. I, I think this I think this is promise. I like that the lawmakers are standing their ground and not refusing to lower the amount. Um, so hopefully this will come to pass. I would love to have seen their reaction. I wonder if there's any video of that. Oh, I, I mean, guarantee there's not video of that. If you're, if you're getting 11 joints out of one eighth, you're more of an expert in origami than you are in rolling joints. <laughs> oh my God. You need to go ch- teach them how to do it, Jason. Right, Jason. But it's such, a, it's such an outrageous claim by the Mississippi governor, not only to tell people that they need to cut their medicine in half, which he's not asking them to do in any other medicine, but also the suggestion that these people with medical cannabis cards are then going to go out and eat, like, he talks about putting 11 million joints on the street or whatever all the time, as if these people are all of a sudden going to become drug dealers with their medical cards. It's, it's pretty outrageous. It's it's wild to see the dis, the like the disconnect there from what they understand and don't understand. You know, they some of them think that they can like touch cannabis and get high. So I applaud this. Thanks for bringing the story up, Gretchen. And I, I just landed in Absolutely. Oklahoma, and I actually will be in Mississippi later today to uh, to examine. But I hear there has been some progress made on this issue, so we'll see. White Gucci on hey, the street. Hey, Jason, I, if you have time, I'd love to introduce you to my friend that's in Oklahoma. I'm only here just to pick someone up at the airport. I'm not even getting off the jet. Ooh, okay, that was fast. All right, <laughs> let's let's finish up the show. All right, so close us out today. He used to chase down suspects before reading their Miranda rights, but now 
He chases down the spiciest Monday Mary Jane news stories. That's right. He's a former cop and cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions. It's Chris Eggers. What you got for us, my brother? Rico, once again, your uh, your intros are, are fire, my friend. Thank you very much. My article today comes out of Guam. The Cannabis Control Board last November adopted rules and regulations for the island's rec- uh, adult-use cannabis industry. So several changes were made. Uh, of note, I'm going to jump down to the bottom of the article, my favorite one, which um, eliminates the blanket authority for governments to seize and hold without legal process cannabis and cannabis products that do not comply with the rules. According to the revised rules, cannabis can only be seized if it is grown using banned fertilizers or pesticides. Um, This article also touches on additional regulations that are going to go into effect soon. Um, Of note, with a 500-square-foot cultivation space, the license is going to be $1,600. The largest cultivation facility will be 10,000 square feet of growing area and will pay $30,000 in initial fees. Where is that money going to go to? You guessed it. Local authorities, and it will also go to support um, government enforcement of the industry. The board decided to slightly reduce the startup licensing fees for cannabis manufacturing facilities from 15000 to 12000 but kept the fees for cannabis retail stores the same at 15000 So there's a few changes coming on board here in Guam, um, but although that the cannabis board adopted the rules and regulations for November 12th, the island's adult-use cannabis industry can't start for at least several more months because the rules have not yet been presented to the legislature for mandatory 90-day review period by lawmakers. So We'll see how this shakes out. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That is so interesting, Chris. So, so what you're saying is they cannot seize the cannabis unless it has illegal pesticides. So they have to test it before they can seize it. Correct. Seize it. Is that is that is that true of any other uh, locality? I mean, that's crazy. Spot that's testing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, they can't seize any cannabis in Guam. Let's go to Guam. You're going to have law enforcement walking around with spray cans of Avid just to make sure that things are contaminated. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yes. Those Jason, Jason needs to add yeah. a stop to his flight. We need to make a stop and go. <laughs> Touchdown. Um, oh, my God. Uh, well, we've reached the top of the hour. Thank you so much. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay here on Clubhouse or find us anywhere you get your podcasts later in the day. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that dig through the news and bring us just what we need to know. Thank you so much, Rico and Liz, for co-moderating today. And thank you, audience, for making the State of Cannabis News Hour the stickiest show here on Clubhouse and out in the podcast universe. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.